Mr. Ames encouraged us to read the latest Living Church news for March and April. That was due to arrive any day. I think he mentioned he had already received his. Uh, we uh, very much appreciate these things coming out on time. You know, it's a, a huge task to uh, coordinate 10 TW magazines and a half a dozen LCNs a year and have them all come out when they're supposed to. Anyway, Mr. Ames mentioned, I think he'd mentioned he'd, he'd already received his. And uh, if we had not, we would be receiving it shortly, which uh, we did. It's a, uh, uh, I suppose we could call it a Passover edition uh, for the Living Church News, so to speak. Most of the articles pretty much are devoted to the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. And he mentioned at the time that there are a number of good articles that would help us in our preparation for Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread and Passover in particular. Now, I would imagine that all of us have received our March-April edition of the Living Church News, and hopefully we've read part or all of that, as Mr. Ames suggested. You know, probably for each one of us, there is a, uh, a formula or a list of things we do each year to uh, prepare for Passover. Uh, maybe in our own lives, we uh, get out the living uh, the uh, Holy Day booklet. We read part of that to think about Passover and unleavened bread. Or we might uh, get a, a copy of the uh, correspondence course and the lessons that are devoted to Passover in the Days of Unleavened Bread. We might listen. We can go on now with uh, on the website, and we can pull up sermons from years past uh, and go on our on, on YouTube and find sermons that uh, about this season of the year and preparing. They go back many, many years. And perhaps uh, those of us, we take the time to do that for part of the, part of the preparation. And all of those are good ideas. We might even read, go back and read the account in Exodus to review that. Uh, you know, it's uh, not I think, the way we prepare, but it seems like every year the movie, The Ten Commandments, does come on. Uh, and maybe we still watch that as well because we know we can identify what doesn't belong there, what didn't happen. But at the same time, it's uh, pretty inspiring to have this image of the Red Sea opening up. At that time, that was leading-edge technology, <laughs> and today it could be so much different. You know, you think, how about a classically, uh, what is it, remastered Ten Commandments with modern-day imagery? But uh, anyway, we go through the effort to get, get ready for Passover. So what would make Mr. Ames' suggestion that we read the Living Church News relevant, so relevant for us today? Well, if we want to know, and I've mentioned this before, and you hear this on other occasions, if you and I want to know what Christ is thinking about, we're encouraged to stay current on the telecast to see what how the gospel is being preached, to read our magazines, Living Church News, and to read Tomorrow's World. In spite of the fact that much of what's there, we know. And, but it's not just intended for the world. These things are good reminders for all of us as well. And we read, uh, hopefully very carefully, 
we read the letters from whether it be Mr. Weston or Mr. Ames or occasionally even Mr. McNair on the, the co-worker letters, the member letters that go out, because those have a very special purpose as well, and we should pray about those. But we read those to make sure that we know what Christ is doing to inspire us in doing the work. And so I think in reading carefully the latest Living Church News, that should give us a pretty good indication of what is on Christ's mind because that's what he's inspired to be written and prepared for this time of year. That's why I called it pretty much the the, the Passover edition of the Living Church News. And we can use this magazine, this edition of it, to prepare, help us prepare for Passover. Now, there are, there are five articles in the first part of the, I think the first half of the magazine or so, that essentially are aimed at or they're, they're intended to help us in our preparation and to focus in particular on Passover and unleavened bread. And maybe in particular for this time of year, and perhaps in one of these days, we might be reviewing this magazine, these articles, for other Passovers yet to come. So this afternoon, in the first part of the sermon, I don't know how, what portion of it exactly, but in the first part of the sermon, I want to review some of the key points from those articles. Now, if you've read them, it'll be review. If you've not read all of them yet, it'll give you an idea of what, what the content is for those articles. And then in the remainder of the sermon, I'd like to discuss one facet. It's mentioned in that list. A fifth facet of character, spiritual character, that is fundamental for us to develop these other traits of Christian character. And we'll devote most of the time to that particular topic. So if you want a title for the, the sermon, I've put it under Living Church News, March, April 2022, and Preparation for Passover. Those, those articles will help us do that. And again, maybe that title will, will help you when you see that. It'll help you understand what, what the content of the sermon might be and, and what's going on in the booklet or the, or the magazine. Now clearly, this will be a review of a, a goodly number of, uh, topics or points. So there won't be a lot of discussion on any one of these. But in doing this, just taking the time to note the topics or points, elements that are there, is to try to make a basic point. And that is that just reading these articles, simply, that's not sufficient. That for us to get the benefit that's intended from what is written there, we would need to study them. And I'm talking to all of us now, including me, that is that I read articles in there. I know what the scriptures say. They, uh, they just quote a part of it. I don't always turn to everyone. Sometimes I do. But that's a good idea to simply turn as we encourage uh, those that are listeners, to, uh, watch, uh, viewers of the telecast to not believe us, but read it in your Bible. And we read these things and just help us absorb them in our mind better. So we need to study these articles. We need to meditate on the points that are that are drawn out there. And then as we do so, to ask ourselves some very introspective questions 
about how well we match up to these items that have to be reviewed, these elements of, of Christian character. How well do I match up? How well am I doing on what's being discussed here in the particular article? So if and when we do that, it's very likely that your list of points will be different than what I what I have here, that you, the list you compile and the, what's most meaningful to you and maybe most applicable to you in highlighting certain things that come out there. They think, well, that, that's something I, I do need to focus on, something I need to think about how well this thing is, these items are evident in my lives. So these are admonitions from the articles that are there. The first article by Mr. Weston is Why Holy Days? And why he asked, why should we be keeping these? What benefit is it to keep them year after year? One of the points that, that got, jumped out at me was essentially what he says here, that, that good human attributes don't equal true Christianity. You know, there are, uh, it seems fewer and fewer, but there are some nice people in the world who are somewhat, you know, they're upright, they're upstanding, they're good citizens, and they, they do nice things, they're good organizations. But doing all of those things, as he says, but they don't keep the holy days, they don't keep the Sabbath, they don't keep the doctrines that God says we should be observing. So they're nice people, but they're not Christian. And we need to think about that for ourselves, that you know, we do not, we want to be nice people. We want to... Uh, be friendly. And by the way, we do get compliments frequently. I receive compliments about our congregation being friendly. Now, we are the largest congregation in the church, and it's nice for people to come to headquarters and be welcomed and feel that it, we're a warm congregation. So we, we rehearse these things, but we have to ask ourselves the elements of Christianity if we're not just trying to be nice people. So he points out here that we, we rehearse this lifelong process of putting sin out of our lives. And he used this analogy, which I think, if you the analogy it resonates with me, that he talks about cutting away the layers of an onion, that we need to go beyond just the routine of keeping the holy days, of keeping Passover and unleavened bread, but think about cutting in deeper and deeper into the onion and pulling away layers of sin, that we examine ourselves more carefully and get more detailed as we as we do that. And he points out here, too, as the world becomes more lawless, a meaner, ungodly place to be, we can be, uh, we can become desensitized to what is going on, and we can become more tolerant of sin. That is, in a sense, that we are less offended by what is going wrong in the world and by what how people are acting. So we ask ourselves, has our perception of sin kept pace with the world in a negative way here? Have we kept pace with the world in what we view as sin and what we are trying to cut out of our lives? Just having standards of righteousness, have they, in our lives, but... Music, entertainment, uh, various things that go on in our society. Have our standards 
deteriorated in accordance as society degrades? Are we less aware of just how bad things are? That uh, our ultimate benchmark, obviously, is Jesus Christ. That we look for his example. We want to compare ourselves to Christ, not to what's going on in the world. And I can't help but think about this and look at this point. I still remember quite often a sermonette that was given at headquarters back in the late 1960s, I believe, by one of the ministers, and he compared our society, and I may have mentioned this before, but again, the, the analogy works in a big way for me at least, that he compared society to a long train. And after going through the, the little more detailed discussion, his point was if that, the world is this long train and it's going down this track, it really doesn't matter whether you get on behind the engine or you climb on at the caboose. You're still going the wrong way. It doesn't matter because at the front end, things happen in the world and we are stunned by it, that things could be this bad. And yet, if uh, for those of us that are my age or thereabouts, you can look back and see that what used to bother or what used to be viewed as bad uh, doesn't seem, by the world standards, doesn't it's been accepted. You know, I can still remember TV watching a program called Father Knows Best. Uh, that resonates with us. I mean, not always we understand that, but the, the, what was on TV was projecting a, a family environment and a right kind of government in the home. I, I don't see any of those reruns on TV today. Now, there are some pretty good ones. When I was sick for several months, I caught up on uh, Opie <laughs> and uh, the, uh, this town, Mount Airy, <laughs> up to, up, you know, just north of us here. Caught up on uh, on that on that, those shows, and because there's just not not a lot of good TV, and uh, as mundane as they were, they were still good entertainment. But the world is not our benchmark. And then there's the article also by Mr. Weston. He said the Bible versus the U.S. Constitution. And he talked about this at the Feast of Tabernacles in Utah. Uh, gave a sermon on part of it. And he uh, talked about that there are those of us in the church perhaps thinks that we think that somehow the Constitution gives us guaranteed rights. And that uh, the Bible uh, it does, doesn't conflict with the Bible. And he points out that freedoms under democracy, are not equal to the tenets and the commands of Jesus Christ and God the Father that we find in the Bible. That our standard of, God, of conduct and our, our government is designed by God, it's revealed in the Bible. He talks about you know, that we sometimes confuse the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all kind of merge and blur in our heads. And we don't fully understand what's there. And he points out there's some things there that will not be in God's kingdom and God's government. So help us understand that, that democracy is a man-devised, a man-created government. And therefore, it's influenced by Satan. And it's destined 
to fail. This system simply doesn't work in perpetuity. It's going to fail. Satan is behind it, and it does not produce a just and lasting peace. It does not produce justice in a righteous society. Mr. Ames has an article, Strive to Conquer Sin Completely. And he points out that God has given his people the motivation and the means to come out of sin. And one of the key scriptures he quotes is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, where in verse 13 it says, It is God who works in you both to will, that is giving the desire to do what's right, and both to will and to do for his good pleasure. They have the attitude of wanting to do what's right and the power to achieve that, to do it. He points out in Psalm 139, we'll turn there later, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, just talks about asking God to search us and examine us. So I'll, I'll turn to that later in, in, the, in the remainder of the sermon later. And so he points out his phrase here, I think it's pretty much uh, an exact phrase, but I'm not sure, but we should remain on guard against even the smallest sin. And while it pointed out in a balanced way that Mr. Elliot referred to deleavening our homes, and we can we don't have to work on this for weeks, but we get ready for Passover, we start weeks in advance. We start the examination process, and we have time to admit to ourselves we have some maybe some, relatively speaking, bigger issues or concerns in our lives, and also to get down into the nitty-gritty of what is going on in the corners, hidden parts of our lives. Mr. Ames points out, he says, Strive to live as Christ lived, to follow his example explicitly to the best of our ability. Then he also mentions that we need to learn to abhor evil to hate evil, and to recognize evil for what it is and the results that stem from it, and learn to recognize those things. And then, of course, we should learn to love and obey God's law. Next article about complaining or completion, written by Mark Sandor, and he it's an interesting observation, I'd never thought about it at all, that we clearly get the indication and part of the track record, not every year of those 40 years, but for the time that Israel was wandering through the wilderness, that they very likely just were one way or the other, time after time, complaining. They were murmuring. And God tells us he doesn't like murmuring. He doesn't want complainers. Said for 40 years, Israel, wandering through the wilderness, complained. And then, as they cross over Jordan and they approach Jericho, uh, they're given this instruction to do something that has not been done for 40 years. And there's no account given there that when God says to all the, circum- all the males should be circumcised, that there's no evidence that they complained. Uh, not hard to think that they have reason 
to do that. But there's no evidence, nothing said they did, that they balked on that. So interesting observation and pointing out that uh, they they seemed to stop complaining and recognizing they were about they were going to be given this task of overtaking Jericho. Maybe they were thinking about that. And he points out that not complaining is a comparison to or it could be equal to, to a degree, a sign of being complete. Now, in the New Testament, we talk about being complete. The word is translated and talks about being spiritually mature. I think it's the word for perfect. We want to be complete. We want to be as perfect as we can be. And so in terms of the complaining, thinking about this, uh, I'd... I don't remember all that often. I can't even think of any specific instance where people, any of us, complained about being sick because of the virus. Because the virus was, we thought, well, sooner or later these things are going to happen. Maybe we were surprised at the suddenness of it, but I don't, I don't think I heard people complain. You know, I hurt. But I think if you're sick and you're hurting, that's not necessarily complaining that, that there's something terrible is happening to you. But in that, what did we complain about while this virus was going on? Well, we certainly complained about masks. You know, why do we have to wear masks? And there were some who tried to make, make that a spiritual matter, that it wasn't right you know, to have masks on to come before God. Uh, we complained about that. You, and you know when it's... It's sort of like uh, uh, mass influence. When everybody, almost everybody's complaining, it's real easy to join in. <laughs> that uh, we have a lot of complaints about that. We complained about uh, having to uh, quarantine. That was unpleasant. Uh, some of us didn't like touching elbows. You know, it's like that, it just not, that doesn't quite uh, do it for me. Whatever that attitude might have been. But the trials were there unexpectedly. We got the virus, and masks were a source of complaining. And yet, in order to be cooperative, both in the church and without the governments that are, that are there, it was something we needed to do. And so he points out in there that uh, regardless of the situation, that whether the trial that we are, are enduring, that uh, we have to do that. And we read in Philippians Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we'll turn there later as well. It talks about doing all things without complaining, even things that we find unpleasant, to do all things without complaining. And then closes with the comment that we should strive to become complete. And I think that, that the way that article was written, that it tied in very well with Mr. Ames' article about striving to overcome sin completely. We get this idea that God wants us to work diligently at eradicating as much sin from our lives as we will rely on him to do. Then the last article that I'll discuss is Hezekiah's Humility, and written by Mr. Rand Millich. He points out that some trials are clearly anticipated, and effort is promptly undertaken to overcome them, to deal with them, to resolve them. And he pointed out that Hezekiah knew immediately that that his country had gone the wrong way. 
and that in becoming king, he would, the first order of business was to begin to obey God and bring the, the nation back into alignment with God's way of life and God's law and God's commandments. So he knew that was coming. Some trials are unexpected. Didn't see all of them coming exactly. And nonetheless, he, he talked about dealing with them. And he said, some trials or tests we don't even see as trials or tests. They're so vague in their, how they affect our lives, we don't understand we're being tried. And that was where the example was the emissaries from uh, Babylon were coming down, and he decided to show them all his riches and the wealth of the kingdom that, that he had, not understanding that they were there for a purpose. And that, that's, a, that's a frightening fact. You said God pulled away from Hezekiah because his, up to that point he had, he had a good track record. And God pulled away to see what Hezekiah would do. And Hezekiah made a mistake. Turned out to be a serious mistake. He, he repented, but it was had serious repercussions. And realizing what was there, that he didn't see this, and he said if he'd been really in tune with God, then it, even as he mentions that Hezekiah saw to it that were, the Proverbs of Solomon were copied and, and recorded, that he, if he'd been applying what he had read there and what, what was there, he would have seen the dangers that lurked behind the friendliness. He's like, but if you look at the, you look out for Hezekiah, you look out all the track record for Babylon and their, their armies, uh, they really weren't too nice to other countries. And so whatever nice things they had to say, whatever, uh, we talk, I mean, politically correct, whatever, how they want to introduce themselves, they were there with ulterior motives. And he didn't see it coming. So Mr. Millich points out that regardless of the situation, he says, keep your focus on God. Don't take any day, any situation for granted. Matthew 6.33 is referenced. He points out here to humble ourselves before God and then to pray for wisdom and discernment so that we can see what's happening. And Proverbs says, you know, that a wise man uh, can perceive the evil and hides himself. He runs from it. He doesn't continue down that path that will take him there. So those are a a quick summary of those five articles that point out some things that you and I can learn at the Passover time. And again, I just uh, I see this, and especially with Mr. Ames encouraging us to read it, but I, I'm saying we should study it as we do a lot of our material to review it very carefully, is that this is a, it's a Passover LCN, and we need to study it in order to take advantage of it. Now, I realize that that's for the introduction, the first part of the sermon. That's, that's a lot of things. There are a lot of things there to take in. And whole sermons have been given on some of those points a number of times, I'm sure. But such a list or a, a noting as we're going through those can be used to help us select the areas of our lives that need specific focus at this time of year as we approach Passover. So think of it as we go through that, if you go through that, think of it as creating your own Passover inventory list of things that 
you can examine and see whether or not they need special attention. So now let me turn to one of the aforementioned traits that uh, we went through there in those articles that I think is fundamental to growing and overcoming as a Christian. And to a degree, I'll phrase it this way, it's a prerequisite to accomplishing those other items of Christian character that you and I are commanded to develop and practice, that here's the prerequisite. And it'll come as no surprise, I would think, if you give it just even a few seconds of thought, that what I'm going to talk about is sincere humility, which is also referenced in the article specifically by Mr. Millage. That I think it's fair to say, though, that Talking about sincere humility, uh, how do we view ourselves? I'm just in a, in a general way. Now, I, I, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think I am, so take it for what it's worth. But I think it's fair to say that most of us like ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean we think we're perfect, but... If someone doesn't like us, why not? <laughs> why, why doesn't she like me? Why doesn't he like me? I'm, I'm a nice guy. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm not trying to be a jerk. You know, I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be a, an engaging person. I'm trying to have the ask the right questions or say the right things. So we, we like ourselves to a degree. Now, again, not that we have this image that we're perfect. But I'm just talking about our, our basic personality. I know there are some things about, uh, all of us know there are certain things we'd like to not, not, uh, not do, not say that way. You can talk to most ministers who get up here and have these sermons recorded or sermonettes recorded, and we watch these things ourselves for a few minutes. <laughs> we can't take any more. It's like, I, I, I didn't mean to say it that way. I, wasn't, I didn't think I was saying it that way. I didn't mean to look like that, uh, whatever. So it's, uh, we have this image that, we're trying, we, that we think is being projected. And I'm sure that's the case pretty much for anybody that is uh, where they're being uh, filmed or whatever. So we like ourselves, knowing that, yes, on a spiritual basis, there are many things we need to change. And I know, in comparison to the world, we you know we are trying to be Christians. We are Christians. We're trying to do what's right, and there are far more evil people in the world than there are Christians. There are people that are deliberately violent. That's witnessed easily on TV, just watching the news. I mean, there are people who are simply immune to being concerned or worried, I would talk the word compunction, have no compunction about killing other people. It doesn't matter how old they are, how young they are. Whatever their objective is in terms of gaining power, gaining influence, gaining wealth, they will do anything in order to have that, that goal. There are a good many people who will sell drugs and to create a turf 
that they own. And they will fight to the death anyone that tries to encroach on that, much less the authorities. There are some violent and some mean, evil people in the world. And even those people sometimes will try to justify or mitigate just how bad things are, the kind of person they are. That uh, One of the phrases that has come out of the entertainment world, and I apparently use in many, many cases, that uh, it's pretty much a common phrase, in doing things that are bad, the comment is, it's not personal, it's just business. The lives of other people, or the lives being lost, it's just business. And we are not those kind of people, as I pointed out. We're not, that doesn't describe us. But we do have to understand that our, our good traits, the good things that you and I may have done in the years of our lives, that has nothing to do with God forgiving us and being chosen to be a part of God's work. And we need to remember, however, regardless of what our human state may be, it's not godly. Let's turn back to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. So this is how we are as human beings when we are, before we're called, before God gives us understanding. In verse 6, just one verse, it says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags or filthy garments. So we're not called because we're righteous. We say we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. We don't unable to see the natures that have come into us through Satan's influence in the world and societies around us. Over in Romans chapter seven. Similar refrain from Paul. Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Paul, an apostle, converted for years. He's writing this. Points out, he says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, on my my natural state as a man, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will, to do what's right, is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I try not to do, that I practice. So even with God's Spirit, there is a 
enormous struggle and war going on in our members with what we know to do and finding a way to accomplish that, finding a way to make that a uh, not second nature. We talk about doing things by second nature. Then really we want to do what's right by our first nature. And we let the human nature, what used to be the first uh, tendency, the initial thoughts that would come to mind, that, no, we would, those things are not the first things that cross our mind. The example we've had so common, we're driving down the road and someone just cuts over in front of us without even looking and almost causes a wreck. What is the first reaction? I forgive you. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not our first reaction most of the time, is it? But that's the human nature. That is the first nature. And we do other, we do what's right by second nature. But God willing, in time, that flips. That what we do, our first nature is to respond the way God would respond. Not in anger, not in resentment, but in recognition that maybe uh, they, were, they didn't see us. Maybe they are having a bad hair day. <laughs> Whatever. Could we be just human reason that there's no reason to feel some sort of resentment for someone doing, doing that. It is unfortunate. Of course, it's dangerous. But nonetheless, our initial reactions aren't always godly. And in Jeremiah chapter 10... We see our human side. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. Jeremiah 10, verse 23. says, O eternal, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Now that has broad meaning. Scripture has been referred to multiple times in the last last several weeks. But it's not in us to direct our lives spiritually. It's not natural for us to do what's right, short of God's spirit. And it's not even really ability. We don't have this wisdom to manage our lives in a good way often. We don't know how to handle the problems that confront us from time to time. And the point of those three scriptures is left to our own devices. Bad things happen. God pulling away from us, like he did Hezekiah. Uh, bad things might happen. Left to our own natures. And we don't have God's nature streaming through our consciousness. So we must never forget and never fail to realize that unless Christ is in us, you and I will come to nothing spiritually. We need God's Spirit. We need Christ living in us in order to really produce something that's good. So that that idea should resonate with us to realize without Christ, we will come to nothing. We have to have God's Spirit residing in us in order to be part of that first resurrection, to be part, made part of the family of God. So we have to remain ever conscious 
of just how much you and I need God, how much we need His Spirit, and how weak we are without it. And whatever good we might do, whatever righteousness we might exhibit, whatever good trait of character that we might develop and have someone even know, see, that we've changed and grown whatever whatever element we've overcome and whatever we are doing that's right, that it's only there because it's a product of God's Spirit in us. It's Christ in us. It's not manifestation of just our natural human way of doing things. And again, that goes back to Mr. Weston uh, in his article. He points out that good human attributes don't equate to Christianity. And so the idea that we like ourselves because we're, we're nice guys, we're nice ladies, that doesn't pass muster in terms of being examining ourselves as Christians. It's so much more that you and I must undertake. So if we're to remain, if we are, and we're to remain truly humble, then we have to realize that we have to not ever become self-satisfied with our position spiritually in God's eyes. That I mentioned earlier we'd turn this. Let's turn back to Psalm 139. Mentioned in the article by Mr. Ames, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, my, my disquieted, disquietness, my, uh, my concerns, my, my thoughts. The old, old King James uses the word thoughts for anxieties. And then see if there is any wicked way in me, anything at all. Mr. Ames points out to strive to overcome even and examine even the smallest of sins. We can look and see those things and recognize that any shortcoming we can note or document and admit to ourselves that that becomes a to-do item. That's something to work on. That's where we want to focus some. There are some big things and there are some not so big, perhaps. But we don't take any, any one of them for granted. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Show me how to qualify for your kingdom, how the kind of character that will let us qualify me and us of us to be in God's kingdom. Lead me in the way that's going to produce eternal life. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we, we, I don't think we can think about preparing for Passover. And this will be referred to a number of times as we go through this season. And we do, for that matter, we do year-round. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So there is no room for a thought that says, Oh, that's not so bad. Because the one thing that doesn't seem so bad by comparison 
is going to germinate. It's going to spread. So beware of the fact that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, he was, of course, talking about that there was a member in the congregation there that was setting a terrible example and being allowed to stay in the congregation. They were tolerating his behavior. But he points out, and this applies then to all of us in, in a spiritual way, Pur- therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. We're physically unleavened. Be spiritually unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, that we have this payment has been made for forgiveness of our sins. Christ is has been sacrificed, so we should be about the business of becoming like him. Therefore, verse 8, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, but with the leaven of, uh, uh, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We are sincerely, deeply, earnestly wanting and trying to change. And Mr. James pointed out that God gives us that desire through his spirit to want to overcome. And then he does promise to also give us the ability to execute that plan. So we had, in the sermonette, we had the uh, physical explained to us and then summarize at the end that has a spiritual overtone, a spiritual rationale and purpose behind taking the physical leaven out of our house houses. But as we go through that routine, we need to remember that there is nothing routine, nothing that is just uh, uh, standard behavior or standard conduct or mechanical about Passover and our preparation for it. This is serious business. Nothing routine whatsoever. We can't go through the motions of deleavening our homes, our cars, and you know we we do that at our office, by the way, because everybody in the building. <laughs> if you have some places we work, you can't deleaven your whole the whole building, but we get to do that, and we each each individually get to. Uh, who's got the vacuum cleaner? <laughs> because I need I needed to vacuum the office. <laughs> And there's some open areas that, you know, I'm not sure who takes care of those things, but it's all done. And we're all going through the desks and because I think most of us do it in the office. <laughs> and so we get to get a look at our desks and the floor and sweep around it, that sort of thing. But we can't just go through the motions of deleavening our homes and all our physical facilities and fail to clean out our spiritual cabinets our spiritual refrigerators. There are, we don't have any of these toasters we can just kind of pitch. (laughs) We have to examine ourselves. We can't afford to not deleaven our hearts and our minds. What we think and how we think. And again, this brings to mind Mr. Ames' article, Strive to Conquer Sin Completely. And not just do the physical and as I mentioned earlier, Christ is our model. He's our measure, not any human being. We don't need to compare ourselves with one another, and certainly not with the world. But we should be humble and work to become complete, spiritually mature. 
getting rid of even the smallest of sins, and we're working on it. But the second point or area about humility underlying being a fundamental piece of accomplishing that is I'm just talk about complaining. And humility is indispensable when it comes to trying to control the tendency for us to complain. And it involves multiple things, but let's go over to, as I mentioned earlier, let's go over to Philippians chapter 2. These are well-known scriptures that apply to this time of year. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. So, again, the word all, it's all-inclusive. That a standard model of conduct is not does not include bellyaching about situations. And being a complainer, that's where our minds are running and we're devoted to to a wrong, if I'm putting it, a wrong stream of thought, and we give voice to it. The complaining comes out of what's going on in our minds. Don't want to do this. Do no, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, again, what what's happened in our society has created plenty of opportunities of being, let's say. Judges of what's going on. We have to recognize evil for evil. We can recognize what is unwise. And mankind and our leaders in particular, think about this, that our governments do things that we know are wrong. They're going to have bad results. And our complaining doesn't change a thing. We're not involved in politics. We're not going to vote someone out of office. And so it really is a waste of mind power, and it's a waste of good human breath to give voice to complaints. And when we don't do that, what it says in verse 15. And as we read this, think about how we view our brethren, and how we take note of someone that doesn't complain, that you may become blameless and harmless. Think about it, harmless. This is innocent, is the marginal rendering of it. Children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. If we want to be lights, to one another, if we want to be lights to our neighbors, to our co-workers, not complaining will be, well, a real bright light because it's so easy to give voice to what bothers us, what upsets us. Again, I talked earlier about complaining about the things we had to do during the virus, but during the virus, uh, at its heyday, which we hope doesn't come back, but it, you know, we, it's still in the news, by the way. It just isn't on the front page quite so much. It doesn't start off with the evening news with, about the virus, but it's still there. 
Let's turn over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We'll read the first couple of verses, and then we'll read the the next three after that. It says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. So we've been reminded of that on multiple occasions, especially in the last two-plus years, that we have obligations to obey the law. Because those officials are there by God allowing them to be there. So be subject to the rulers and authorities. Certainly as long as they don't expect us to break God's law. But then to be to obey and to be ready for every good work. To be prepared to follow the law. To with good intent. I'm going to be cooperative. I'm going to cooperate with the government. And we could, we could expand that to include our thoughts about following the government that God has placed in the church. And not to necessarily harp on something, but nonetheless, there were things that were, there were guidelines and instructions given to God's people. And sometimes they were, they chafed us a bit. And we gave voice to it. And again, if that, if one spoke up and he happened to find a someone of like mind, then it's easier to share that conversation. Yeah, that's the way I feel. I never thought about it quite the way, but yes, you're right. And we're still Israelites. We're spiritual Israelites. But there's a little bit of physical Israelite in us (laughs) as well. And those that aren't physically Israel, uh, humans, we're all human. But think about the guidelines the church has given us, that Mr. Weston and those that, that oversee us and lead us. How cooperative were we to be ready for every good work? I'm prepared to follow the government that God has placed in the church. That's how I do things. Not, to, not, a vain, not in a vain way, but just that this is, I want to do, I want to do the, the things that God wants me to do, and I want to do them His way, to be ready for every good work. And verse 2, to speak evil of no one, no one, whether it's the president or any of the, someone that has authority over how our nation runs, how our local government runs, or how evil are the actions of any number of governmental leaders. Now, names, I know, saying that, a couple of names pop into your mind immediately. But why don't we? Speak evil of anyone. To be peaceable. We are to be peaceable. We are peacemakers. Gentle. Showing all humility to all men. So again, humility underpinning. 
this idea of not being critical, not not complaining about those that are doing things we can, we can see clearly are unwise and maybe they're wrong. To speak evil of no one, whether that be in the church or out of the church, to show humility to everyone. Then he points out here why we should do this, why we should feel this way. For we ourselves are also once foolish. This, what we can see in the world that short of God's spirit, that's, as we say, but for the grace of God, there goes you or me. We were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived. The world is deceived. And for the time being, they don't know what's going on. They don't understand that they're under the influence of Satan. And that's why we should have some some level, some sense of mercy, concern, sorrow for them. Because they've not been chosen by God to know what you and I know. We were deceived. We were serving various lusts and pleasures. There were various things that we were pursuing before God called us. Living in malice and envy. You know, malice, hatred, resentment, revenge, revenge, that's part and parcel of this first nature. These things are common. Living in malice and pleasures. Serving various lusts and pleasures and living in malice and envy. Hateful and hating one another. Hate's a strong word. The Bible tells us we should hate evil. That's a good question to ask ourselves. Do I hate evil the same way that God says he hates evil? He abhors evil? Good question for us to meditate and think about. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, why? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We didn't earn the calling. God didn't say, well, this, that, you know, Ezekiel, I don't know if there's anybody here named Ezekiel, so I'll use that name. Ezekiel's a nice guy. Let me call him. No, that wasn't the criteria. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That he helps us get rid of all the stain and all the evil that is incorporated in our lives before we're called. So, speak evil of no one. We don't need to complain about the things that are wrong. We can recognize them for what they are, but refrain from spending time and energy and thought about them and taking issue with them in a very open and public manner. All right, thirdly, humility in judging others and forgiving others. Let's turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14.
verses 10 through 13. Romans 14, verse 10. And Paul is writing here, and it's important to note the context, but the overriding principle is important as well. But there is a context about things that have to do with personal conscience, not about absolutes of right and wrong. And so this idea of personal conscience and deciding that if I think it's wrong, that means it's wrong, and no one should be doing differently. He points out, but why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we also all stand, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. In other words, don't take issue with someone who happens to have a different opinion about what's better to do when it clearly is not a matter of absolute right and wrong in terms of God's law. That sometimes... We will allow someone to do something that is necessary to do because their faith says they should. And sometimes we allow someone not to do something that is okay because in their mind it's not, not appropriate and not spend time judging one another. First Corinthians chapter 11 Again, one of these basic scriptures at Passover time, verse 26, where the scriptures that follow Paul's point that Christ had given him instructions about how Passover was to be conducted. But verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup at Passover, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We examine ourselves before we take the bread and we eat the bread or we drink the little sip of wine. We don't examine ourselves and don't keep Passover, we examine ourselves and we acknowledge our sins, and then we take Passover. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, we have this obligation to go through this inventory check spiritually on an annual basis, where it's a focused effort for a short period of time prior to Passover. Not that we don't review these things all year long, but at Passover, it's extra effort, second effort to go into these things. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. If we just, this is by rote, it's not with a conscious effort, we're not examining ourselves, then that's certainly not appropriate. 
And for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And there were consequences in the Corinthian church. Many of them, he said, he said, many sleep because they were not following the mandates and the laws of God. They were practicing things that were wrong, and they were not letting Passover and its intent change their lives, or backing up in, in the effort to examine and, and be different and do what's right. They're weak and sickly, many were weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. God wouldn't have to work with us in a, in a, and give us trials and allow tests to, to come upon us. But when we are judged, when we don't do it ourselves, when we don't go through the examination process, then, it says here, when we are judged, when God has to do these things, he does on occasion, he gives us, we have trials and challenges that he allows to happen and come upon us. When we're judged, we are chastened by the Lord. And he does that so that we won't be condemned with the world. He brings these trials to wake us up, to show us the things that we might have overlooked or an attitude of satisfaction, self-satisfaction, has crept into our lives. In Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, short verse that summarizes this point, chapter 6, verse 37 This is verse 37 of Luke 6. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Don't condemn. Don't think ourselves better than someone else. We'll note that in just a moment. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Rather, forgive, and you will be forgiven. We know from the outline of prayer that God gives us in Matthew chapter 6 goes through very clearly. He says we in verses 14 and 15 that as we forgive others, then God will forgive you and me. And forgiveness is really hard. If someone apologizes and we say, that's okay, you're forgiven. And yet, in our minds, the offense can sometimes burn a little longer. To forgive and try to forget is really the objective. Do we, just that, that, that offense, whatever it was, simply, it's like it never happened. That is, it's the way it is with God. If we repent of our sins, then again, the chalkboard is wiped clean for us. And it's as if it never happened. So don't judge, don't condemn one another. And then rather than that, spend time focusing on forgiving one another. In 2 Corinthians, Chapter 1. This particular verse resonates with me. I just, it's, uh, the, the phrase, the, way, the, just the, the, the sound of the phrase means a lot to me personally. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That showing mercy is 
But that, that, that originated with God, with their father. That's the way he's been for time immemorial and the way he'll always be through eternity. He is the father, the originator, the source of mercies. And because we understand that, he also would, we can have this, he's the God of all comfort, that knowing how merciful God is gives you and me great comfort, knowing that whatever our mistakes and our sins may have been, that they can be wiped out. Let's turn over then back to uh, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 12 through 15. Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Sometimes we those things, again, they merge together. Humility and meekness. And they have different, they, they connote different things in our minds. But put these things on, tender mercies, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, if we rather then complain about it, even as Christ forgave you, so also we, we have to do the same. Be forgiving. But above all of these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It's the bond of maturity, spiritual maturity. It's the one thing that overrides all of these characteristics, including humility. That is the feeling of love and being, giving, forgiving someone based on that. But understanding this love that does tie us together. And then in verse 5, and let the peace of God, or verse 15, the rule, the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. That we are to contribute to the peace and the unity that God certainly intends for his church. A key part of being willing to forgive is the humility to understand we are not going to compare ourselves among ourselves. Over in Philippians, it talks about us to esteem others better than ourselves. Anyone esteem others better than ourselves, which means we have to be humble in order to do that rather than criticize or judge and bring them down in our eyes or maybe the eyes of others, that if we are esteeming them, we are complimenting them, we are, you see, lowering ourselves in our eyes and elevating them in our eyes. To esteem others better than ourselves. It's vital that we strive to maintain the attitude of deep and sincere humility. Let's turn back to a couple of scriptures in closing in Isaiah. Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. 
He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit and revive the heart of the contrite ones. The kind of individuals with whom God associates and brings up into his family. I dwell in a high and holy place, and I'm going to share that with someone who has the humble spirit, and I'm going to revive the heart, their lives. In chapter 66, in closing, verses 1 and 2, Thus says the Eternal, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand is made, and all those things exist, says the Eternal. So we can't, we really have nothing to give God. He owns everything. I've made it all. But as great as I am and as powerful as I am, to this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That attitude of humility is one of what you and I use to let's say, help ensure we're working on the other things that need to be changed. But there's a whole laundry list of things that you and I work on, I know. But maintaining a humble attitude will help bring all of those things to fruition.